die, Captain. But I am most certainly not dead. Welcome to Rediscovery, the Star Trek recap podcast whose favourite songs are considerably less than 288 years old. (laughs) I'm one of your hosts, Ben McKenzie, and I'm joined, as always, by my fearless captain, Carla Donnelly. Greetings, Captain. Live long and prosper, Ben. So, let's talk about An Obol for Charon, an episode that combines the fun and hope of this season's first couple of stories with some of the darkness and mystery of season one. While the Spock thread is kept dangling in front of us and yanked away like yarn in front of a kitten, this episode progresses the May plotline, returns Tignit, I mean, Jet Reno to us, (laughs) finds great plot reasons to explore rich elements of the Star Trek mythos and gives us some big feels and gets deep into Saru and his relationship with Michael. We kick off with a blast from the past. Captain Pike's trusty number one visits briefly to confirm Enterprise is still in space dock and to deliver a clue that will let Discovery chase after Spock. Pike argues with Burnham over her reluctance to get involved, but while in pursuit of Spock's stolen shuttle, the ship is sharply pulled out of warp. A massive sphere, part biological in nature, has them in its grip and soon starts messing with the Universal Translator and other ship systems, causing chaos. Saru's mastery of languages comes in handy, but soon he collapses. What he had hoped was just a cold is actually Vaharai, the state Kelpians enter when they are about to die, either at the hands of their predators or in madness. In engineering, Stamets and Tilly are watching over May, the fungal life form, when they are joined by Jet Reno, sent to seal off the ship's propulsion systems from the malfunctions happening elsewhere, and to trade sass with Stamets. When the power is shut off, May escapes and latches onto Tilly, dosing her with hallucinogens, although whether to calm her or take her over is unclear. Burnham and Pike debate what the sphere wants. It could surely kill them if it wished, so why this slow attack through the computers? Burnham and Saru work to slow down the sphere's virus-like influence and share a tender moment. Their work done, Michael learns Spock's trail will go cold if they don't break free of the sphere soon and visits engineering where Stamets' plan to talk to May through a neural interface inspires her. Heading back to Saru, the two realise the sphere is trying to communicate, and that this isn't first contact, but last. Saru's Vaharai was triggered because the sphere is dying. Saru and Michael convince Pike to power down the discovery to receive the sphere's message, believing it is the sphere's attempt in its final moments to download its history for preservation before it dies. The sphere pushes discovery away to safety just as it implodes, gifting the Federation with 100,000 years' worth of data from its vantage point. In Season 2's first real tearjerker, we cut to Saru instructing Burnham to sever his ganglion, euthanizing him before he descends into madness. Michael's face contorts in pain as she cries, desperately wondering whether this is truly inevitable. Both Saru and Michael are forced to accept what they have been indoctrinated, logic and biology. And this seems to be the main theme of this episode, the polarisation between action and surrender. There is a lot in this episode for the Trek fan, the misfit who left home without looking back to find a place where they belonged, where they could be truly stimulated and perhaps people they could call kin. This, for me, was the source of my many tears shed over this episode. If we surrender to others' ideas of who we are and what our potential is, that this is a form of death. 
But who are we without someone to remember us? Do we exist? Did we exist? But when we push, we can discover an entire universe of ourselves, but also the rage that is unleashed that comes with this knowing. This is further characterised back in the lab with Stamets, Tilly and Reno. Dr. Frankenstein, I mean Reno, has trepanned a neural interface into Tilly to talk to May. In a childhood that appears to be dotted with loneliness and isolation, May is a friend that Tilly had for only six months and is the fungi's best bet at manipulating her kindness. The team are dosed by the entity and Tilly disappears, seemingly into the mycelial network, just as Stamets was going to close the door for good. This episode heavily explores the isolation, drive and ambition of the highly intelligent, all crewmen on discovery are the best in their field, but struggle heavily with their interpersonal relationships, most maintaining a persona that appears impenetrable. However, it is only through teamwork, connecting with their fellow humanoid, that they are able to achieve their goals. And truly by letting others in, allowing themselves to love platonically, it radicalizes their world belong anything that they have experienced. The yin-yang of humans' fascination and aspiration with space exploration being represented in the microcosm of emotional experience, I feel is absolutely the essence of Star Trek. I adore this episode, Ben, but do you think I'm projecting? <laughs> Look, if you are, then I am too. I cr- did you cry, Carla? Oh my I god! Sure did. Are you kidding? Oh. Just not oh. even for Saru dying, because of course I love Saru, but Michael, like Michael's, just. Beyond existential pain. It's so multidimensional, the things that she is having to accept and go through all in that one moment. Well, he's her, like, you know, she's she's made a new family of the discovery, but Saru's now like the last link to her old family from the Shenzhou. I mean, Mm. yeah, Detmer is there as well, but I don't, you never get the impression that the two of them were ever close. Not like she and Saru were. And they've had this big bust up where, you know, Saru couldn't agree with her methods and what she did. He's forgiven her. They've repaired that friendship. They've become close again. And now she's going to lose him. It's it's heartbreaking, you know, and they have those. I'm tearing up now thinking uh. about it. And it was just, it was wonderful and sad. And I really, I, I, I really thought he was going to die. Me too. I really did. Because, I mean, it's a show that's shown that it's quite happy to kill people off and it's look you know in modern television i think in this post game of thrones um era we all think anyone could really die at any any moment you know um they'll be in the episode when their name is in the titles that's as much as you can tell Mm. and you don't know if they're going to be dead and a ghost or a flashback and they could die and Mm. and i really thought it was going to happen and i was so glad that it didn't not just because, you know, I love the character Saru, but because I really like where it's going to take his storyline. Mm. But I absolutely agree with you that it's such an important theme in this episode that people have found their place in Starfleet aboard a spaceship and that the letting down of those barriers that they put up is so important for their success. Mm. Like what I was talking about, you know, an episode or two ago about the characters trusting each other and telling each other what was going on which has been a continuing theme. And they resist that at first most of the time. But the thing that I like about Discovery is they let those walls down pretty quickly, usually within the same episode or at least the episode after. So mm. it's never like, oh, finally you've told him about that. It's like, oh, no, this only happened earlier this episode or, or last episode. So, yeah, I don't think you're projecting. <laughs> I think that's what it's all about. And also I think like Michael and Saru are, you know, metaphorical or um, parables about science and religion. You know, you've got one race that is entirely 
biologically fear-driven and you've got one race that is entirely logic-driven and the whole arc of their relationship has been about trying to find that space between them that they share Mm. and not only just getting along but also developing this deep relationship between each other and that they need each other. They're not single units, you know, that there is together they are more than the sum of their parts and that is, you know, it's just such a beautiful message. Absolutely. I think also there's that great internal conflict in Michael. And although it's not a conflict anymore. I mean, one of the things I loved most about this She's letting go. She's letting go. But also she still has that Vulcan ability because you see it twice in this episode. And I like sat up straight when I saw her do it. She literally shrugs off her emotions. Mm. Like she's when she's so bereft and there's so much pain on her face and, and she's letting it out and saying what she really feels. And then she's like, well, I've got to get on with this and do this for my friend. And she just sort of straightens up and the emotion leaves her face. She's Mm. like, it's time to get the Vulcan mindset on. And I think that's something that a human who's trained can do, but Vulcans can't do because Mm. there's that whole backstory about their emotions are so overwhelming. That's why they have to train themselves to subsume them. Um, And it's something that Spock struggles with too, Mm. being half human. Mm. Um, But he sublimates his emotions most of the time whereas michael can she's learning to be able to use them when they're necessary and put them away when they're not which like feels like a dream Uh, (laughs) you know like i think we've all felt like we wished we could do that at some point and that's where i find pike such a compelling character and mostly the captain is because a good captain and almost all of the captains i can think of in star trek have modeled this behavior where they are kind and compassionate people to their crewmen but when it comes down to it they are they are completely solid in their ability you know like pike doesn't even break a sweat when he's like eject the warp core you Mm. know like his whole face does not change through that whole thing and it's just like that is also such an immense level of training and meditation and also i think sometimes inherent in people to you know like he he is what Michael should be looking up to, but she still desires to be Sarek. That's my feeling. Oh, you know? that's interesting. I like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. I think it's also interesting to compare uh, Pike's command style with what Tilly is like and to see how much of a – because I think that's a, that what you said is absolutely true and that's the thing that she's got a journey to go on to get mm, there. Because mm. when she's competent, she's great, but she doesn't believe in herself enough that she can get there easily or without the kind of encouragement of others at the moment. And I think that's where she's got to get to. Because Pike doesn't need someone else to look to him and say, what should we do? He's just, it's my job to do that. I'm onto it. Yeah, but he's also been taught by somebody to do that. And I think that that's also like the huge message of this is that if we don't share of ourselves with each other and if we don't have, you know, it's like that, you know, uh, if you can't see it, you can't be it, you know. So we can, and that's what I love about Discovery the most is that there's so many characters that are on so many different planes of their development and there truly mm. is a character for everyone, yeah, you know, and you can sort of see from A to B and how, you know, dotted along the landscape you'll become X, Y, and Z on your way to there, you know, if you hope for. But one thing I did love about this episode is that you forget how much of a dick Stamets is. <laughs> yeah. And I felt like that was the first true Stamets moment post Hugh, which I really liked. Yeah, he has had that sort of weird smugness about him, which is which is an odd thing to say about someone who's clearly still grieving. Mm. But but he has had a bit of that. Like even when he's talking about the opera, it's just like I know about opera and important things. Mm. You know, 
Um, and I love when he's trading the barbs with uh, Reno. I think- Which I call the soft butch showdown. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but I think I think one of the great things about that exchange is that they both are very reasonable in it. Like, they're both being snarky to the other one. But whereas Reno's, like, being, you know, she's got some sass and she's given him some sass, but it's because she's just been told, yeah, this spaceship flies on mushrooms. And she's like, that's ridiculous, but okay, I'll do my job. Mm. That's kind of her attitude. And his attitude is like, don't come in here and tell me how to do my job, this thing you don't even understand. And also, you know, he's got that real strong ecological kind of message. Mm. Um, and they both they're both right in their way, you mm. know. And I liked that. I didn't feel like that was imbalanced. It was a nice sort of trade off. And then they become friends, of course, because there's no one right way. Yes. And I, you know, which we're learning every day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially Michael. Yeah. I really loved that this. Like, even though it was about through dying, I really loved that this focused so much on Michael. This episode, mm. her development has been so amazing to watch. Yeah, and, you know, she's been – it feels a little bit like the last couple of episodes she's been a bit of a the B-plot, even mm. though she should be so tightly involved in the A-plot. But the A-plot, like I said at the intro, is being dangled in front of us and pulled along in a string, you know, well, the, the arc plot anyway mm. about Spock, and we're not there yet. We haven't found him yet. I mean, you know, I feel like we won't find him for another five episodes, you know. Oh, my God. They're going to string this out as far as possible. And he, that's there, okay. is a char- there is an actor who is playing, so playing him, so we will see him at yeah. some point. We've seen, we've seen him. We know what he looks like. Mm. I mean, you know, he looks like he looks a bit like Spock, I guess. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. Like maybe. The, do you think that's why they made the actor grow a beard? So that we wouldn't... A little bit more sort of camouflage. Be a little I don't bit think easier. they really care about that anymore, do they? We're supposed to kind of suspend no. belief. They just give them the same haircut and yeah, well, put that- them in a uniform and say, there you go. Speaking <laughs> of which, Rebecca Romjan playing number one. Holy dooly. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, such a small scene, but just establishes a presence immediately. I really enjoyed her in this role. Hopefully we get to see more of her. I, well, I mean, you don't cast Rebecca Romjan for like a 10-minute not even 10 minutes, like if she's on the screen for three minutes in this episode, I think you'd be lucky. Mm. But she's got that same level of sass as the original number one, which mm-hmm. I thought was was great because she's, you know, such a forgotten character. Mm. She's only in that pilot. And, yeah, it's lovely to see her back. And is she in the menagerie as well? Because I've only seen the pilot episode. She is, but not, not it's as It's whatever's much. spliced from the pilot episode. Yeah, because it's yeah. really Spock's retelling of the bits that are really most relevant. So there's a lot of the normal framing stuff you'd have is not there. Mm. I mean, they do use mo- a lot, like the majority of the footage from, from the cage in the menagerie. But mm. from memory, and it's been a little while since I last watched it, um, I don't think she's in the menagerie nearly as much as she is in the cage. So we've got 100,000 years of data. We're back on Spock's trail. Yeah. Oh, I, can, um, I, can I talk about that 100,000 years of data? Sure. I have a theory. Okay. I hope this is a setup to link Discovery in to the Picard series. Because what? they say that it will take centuries for them to study all this information. And by the time we get to the Picard, new Picard show era, that's like about 140, well, I'm guessing here, but it's like at least 120, 130 years later. So I and his his hobby is archaeology, right? So I'm hoping that he studies this information or that there's some link between the two. Just like and it doesn't have to be a major link. I just think that would be a nice thing for them to have set up. It would be very cool. Yeah. And it also you know, there's a couple of things that is very expositiony to kind of 
link to canon, create canon. So there's that. Yeah. So that's how we sort of get most of the data for the voyages that come later. Yeah. Go and explore this, go and explore that. You've also got Pike explaining about, um, you know, how he thinks it's the damn hologram infrastructure on the enterprise is oh, like yeah. rip it out so that creates the exposition that's that's the reason why um discovery enterprise- has holograms and yeah and enterprise has screens and then presumably they have screens for the rest of the fleet because he becomes fleet captain later mm. so there's you know there's little points of exposition there that i think the fans are really loving as well or hating yeah. apparently so <laughs> well look you know it, of course people have their own opinions but i don't want to really want to hear about the hating opinions <laughs> we've got to talk a bit more about the emotional business between Saru and Michael. What have we, what have we got to say? I just, like, <laughs> the things that we find out about his backstory or his his feelings about being in Starfleet, I just, I, I really liked how it touched on themes of refugees and wow. that he is a refugee, you know, and that makes total sense. But the, the things that happen in this episode make, you know, when we talked about the short treks back in, you know, our second bonus episode before we started the season, I was a bit like, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't quite gel with what we've already found out about Saru. But now I'm like, oh, now it does kind of make sense. There's this whole like biological thing that happens to them where they think that means they have to go and get culled now. Mm. But he talks about it like, I, I still think there's a big disconnect between the way he talks about it, knowing what happens and the way that his society seems to view it. But now it's starting to make more sense. And I, and it's clear to me there's going to be an episode or two that explores that in a great more detail. Mm. And we find out who the Ba'ul are and what, what their deal is. So, yeah, I'm still confused that they, uh, you know, the, the, the Ba'ul clearly have like post-warp era technology. Mm. So why the Federation can't make contact with him and say, stop eating these people, mm. I don't know. Uh, and I'm also a little bit confused about, to, to just get on back on the Prime Directive train a little more, a little confused about how Saru's journal suddenly means his species isn't applicable under General Order 1 anymore. Oh, no, that he they can't, they, they won't be able to give them that information until right. they become a post-war. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, yeah I, I misunderstood that. I thought he was saying that if she documents it, then they won't, it won't no, apply to them anymore. He's he, just working, he's just like log it. And then and when, when they're, yeah. Gotcha. Okay, that makes much more sense. And yeah. also that's even sadder because it's like. Oh, that's what I mean. It's his, so heartbreaking. His people aren't even going to see this until who knows how long. Yeah. But now it's different. Now it's different. Mm. I, I, I also, I really hope that like Saru gets some kind of superpowers now that he doesn't have his <laughs> like ganglia that just dropped out and it's like a well, evolutionary have, stage for Kelpians. Well, he'd have so much uh, processing power oh my God, if you're not yeah. spending all that energy on, you know, being anxious. And he's already immediately like, I'm not afraid anymore. And I'm like, oh, what are you going to do, Saru? Are you going to kick some ass? Yeah. I wonder if shirtless Saru is a hashtag already. Oh, probably. <laughs> Did you think that's what he looked like under the shirt? Yeah. Uh, I I really liked the how much they used the universal translator in this episode mm. because it's such a it's kind of like such a background thing in Star Trek, but I've never seen it used as such a plot device before. And mm. it's just a really nice way to remind us that, yeah, all these folks on the bridge, they don't all speak the same language. They're mm. being translated constantly. Um, and in my, whenever this comes up, I always think, but why do their mouth movements match the language that we're hearing? How does that work exactly? And I, it I doesn't matter. I wouldn't think too deep into it. <laughs> no, it really, I only ever think it for about five seconds, mainly because it's fun to, to think of reasons why that works. Like, is the universal translator just hearing audio and then speaking another language, like real translators that we have in our real world right now? Or is it, um, 
you know, is it something deeper? Is it like a babel fish? Like it translates it in your brain before oh. you speak, you know, so That's I That's interesting. I, I, I love it anyway. It's great. And I, I like that <laughs> Saru knows 94 languages because just imagine the discipline it takes to learn 94 different languages from another, you know, from other cultures and mm. other species when there's a device that exists that means you can just speak to them automatically anyway. Sure. You know? Uh, my thing of that is when they're talking with people back on Earth, I'm like, that would literally take years. Like, how are they? Are they warp speeding these transitions, like transmissions? Like, I can't. That's the thing that I think about the most. I'm like, mm. it's literally real time. Anyway. It's subspace transmission. Oh, I? that's right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they never explain how it works. But yeah, I, I know. <laughs> the idea is that they're sending these signals somehow not through normal space. Yeah, it's but it, going, yeah. it's looping around. <laughs> yeah. Well, it means they hardly ever get, I mean, un- unless you're a voyager. You hardly ever get the plot device of we can't talk to people because we're so far away. Mm. Like even in, uh, and this is something about, you know, we're, we're both watching Enterprise now. I think one of the things that I find the weirdest about it is that it's not so, it's really not that different from other Star Trek. Like they like cause they, they play up as the premise, you know, it's before the Federation, it's before they had shields, it's before they had proper transporters and you like so disagree with you they have all this stuff already like they can they can just talk to home anytime they want they can i don't know i but uh, it's a conversation for another time it is maybe (laughs) maybe it's a bonus episode we'll talk about how we feel about enterprise do you want to move on to short chats yeah let's do it okay now it's time for rediscovery short chats where we talk news trivia and anything related to discovery and also any questions you have for us follow our socials and get in touch And we do have a question this week, don't we, Carla? Yeah, we do. We have a question from Josh Wright. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Josh. Uh, He got in touch via Facebook and he is puzzled by the whole Enterprise business. He has lots of questions. What happened to Enterprise? Why is it so heavily damaged? What happened to the hundreds of souls on the ship? Are they okay without all their senior officers? And why isn't Pike going back? Is Enterprise a Manus Island level of intergalactic ignorance and forgetfulness? Have I missed something or is there background from the original Star Trek series that I need? Well, look, I, I thought I'd go back and, and look at this because if you remember a few episodes ago, I was a bit confused about this. Yeah, I think it's really episode. confusing. I don't think you're the only one, Josh. Yeah, they've, they've left little hints for us. They've kind of described what's happened, but there's not really any concrete information about why. Mm. Uh, I mean, in this episode, well, let's go back to the start. So, in, in Brother Enterprises described as being completely offline except for life support. And they also say that only something catastrophic could do that to Enterprise because it's, you know, like one of the major ships in the fleet and sure. it's built to last, you know. Uh, and Pike also says they suffered multiple catastrophic systems failures uh, while heading on their way to the first red burst. But, you know, this doesn't quite make sense because they they mention all this in passing, but what happens in the episode is that Enterprise seems to be on its way to meet up with Discovery so that Pike can get on board. But actually, they're sending out a distress call because they're stuck. They can't get anywhere. And it just happens that Discovery is passing by. And No, but I also think that that ties into this where it's like when there's a ship that is is going to go into space dock for a long time that needs extensive repairs, usually they just keep the repair crew on and they repatriate mm. the rest of the officers either into other missions or they give them shore leave. Yeah. So I think it was like marrying – I mean, these guys were investigating the Red Burst. So was the uh, – the, so was – the Enterprise, and so they just repatriated Pike straight onto the Discovery yeah, to, keep, to continue his mission. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Yeah, and 
I mean, look, when number one shows up in this episode, she does give us a bit more detail about what's going on. She does answer a couple of your questions, Josh, because she confirms that the Enterprise has been towed to space dock. And I think there might have been a, a brief mention about that in one of the earlier episodes as well. So we know it's in space dock and it's being repaired. Its current chief engineer is currently on board. His name is Louvier, and they make a nice little reference to, I don't think they'll ever have an engineer on this ship who loves it as much as this guy. <laughs> it's like, oh, yes, they Wink. will. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I like that he sounds French. Um, <laughs> that's nice. But yeah, so so it's... Yeah, and and they suspect the holographic comm system, but it's a cascading range of failures. And I just want to reiterate my theory for the record that I think we're going to discover Spock sabotaged the ship in case it ever went after the red bursts. So he somehow programmed the ship systems to shut down um, or put like a, you know, like a virus in there or something. If they are ever heading to one of the coordinates, he's already identified as where the bursts are. So I, that's my prediction. I have, I, I don't, it's just a gut feeling. I hope that it's true because I think that would be really cool, <laughs> but I don't know if we'll, I don't know if that'll be true. Yeah. So we can only assume that the Enterprise staff has been repatriated to other missions or they're on shore leave. Um, if you want to go back, I've only watched the pilot episode for Star Trek, which is, you know, basically most of Pike's backstory. Yeah. And then they recut, as Ben said in the episode previous, a couple of episodes previous, they've recut that episode into a double episode called The Menagerie, which I'm just up to. Yeah. And I think they're really the only two episodes that you'll get background on Pike, but it doesn't really explain any of this. This is new to canon, this mm. this incident. So we're about as in the dark as you are. Yeah, they very rarely, if ever, mention what the Enterprise got up to before Kirk took it over, except for those episodes you just mentioned. So, yeah. Okay, I want to recommend The Short Tricks if you guys haven't seen it yet. If you go to Netflix and you go to trailers, you kind of have to dig around a bit. I don't know why they buried them so much, but if you dig around in trailers, you'll be able to find the four Short Trek episodes. The one about Saru is particularly related to this episode, Mm. so if you're feeling a little bit lost as well, that would be great. Um, So Commander Nan was wearing a skirt, this oh, episode, did you I see that? that? No. So cool. Like a discovery skirt. That's awesome. Want one. And do you want to talk about number one, the history of number one, I Michelle think, Barrett? Yeah. Yeah. You've watched it more recently than me. What's yeah. your impression of number one? Well, I don't I don't necessarily want to talk about much about the character because, you know, she yeah, she's like headstrong, beautiful, amazing, but you don't really see her much in that episode. Mm. I just wanted to give everybody, especially people who haven't experienced or known much about Star Trek. So, Michelle Barrett, who was number one in the pilot, um, she was also the voice of the computer for all of the Star Treks up until Voyager. She was also married to Gene Roddenberry. Mm. She's considered the first lady of Star Trek. And she was Luxwana Troy yeah. on Next Gen, which I think is per- like is personally my favorite character in Star Trek of all time. She's, <laughs> She's fucking amazing. amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, um, like... Goals. Hashtag goals. <laughs> yeah. Um, what else do you want? Do you have anything else about Michelle Barrett? Uh, look, that continuity of having the same computer the com- voice yeah. over a century or more. Yeah. It's just, it's it's beautiful. just a lovely little, it's a lovely little thing. And, and she's great. She does such a great job of um, both, uh, all of those characters. Yeah. What do you have? Uh, well, I, I kind of. Do you want of- to talk about aliens? I do, well, I always want to talk about aliens, uh, and I particularly want to talk about how great is it that Linus, our favourite sneezing lizard man, has now got dialogue 
<laughs> and six nostrils. And six nostrils. Ah, <laughs> oh, he was great. And I, I, I really like how they're bringing because they had that scene at the start of this episode where there's all the bridge crew sitting around a table, like you know, daily the, briefing, doing a daily briefing, yeah. discussing the problem. And then the captain comes in and Linus is just one of them and he's just chatting about it. And later on, you know, he's also been researching the sphere and reporting what they've found mm. alongside Michael. So he's clearly part of the science crew, I guess. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, he's – I just really enjoyed that. And, <laughs> and also Nan is back. Nan is in back. In her skirt. In her skirt. She's very cool. Noticed. Yeah, she's cool. So it's nice to see her around and that there's – We've got this great supporting cast of people who we're now getting to know a little bit better. And uh, hopefully a couple more of them will get a bit more of a spotlight episode, just like Washakun did. Yeah, and that's maybe also like directly related to Josh's question. Like obviously Nan has been moved over to the Discovery mm. whilst the Enterprise is being repaired. Yeah, and we know number one is hanging out in the space dock overseeing the repairs. Because right. Because it's like we're not going to let someone else look after our ship we're going to keep an eye on it Mm. and he's asked her to do that but it's also given her some time to look into the whole spock thing so it's worked out quite well i will say one other thing that made me raise my eyebrows was when pike and i don't know the doctor's name i'm sorry pike the doctor and michael were in sick bay and they're like holding down the bandages on that person who's like bleeding to death but they're still just like talking all about through i'm like rude i made a note about this i'm like look i recently did a first aid course and this was not okay that would not be comforting for the person who is bleeding to death no i'm like take your conversation outside or be here and present and pay attention exactly it's not it's it's either or, guys. Either or. Uh, That's all I have. Yeah. I. Uh, yeah. Wow. I, look, the other thing I do, we haven't talked much about the engineering plot line and the mycelial network. Oh, uh, that's true. Um, but I do want to say, I thought, I, and I, I think you didn't feel the same, but I thought it was a little bit weird that Jet Reno suddenly pops up and she's been on the ship the whole time. Like, She'd just been stranded on an asteroid for, was it like five months or six months? But it's not the Jet Reno show, Ben. I know that, but I'm just saying, surely they should have taken her home, whereas the implication of her dialogue is that she's been on the ship ever since. Like, she didn't take any time off. She didn't get rehabilitated or debriefed. She's just gone, I'm just going to hang out on Maybe that's what's been happening the whole time, and now she's reporting for duty. I guess maybe, but it sounds like when she talks, it sounds like she's been on the ship the whole time. But also, like, what are her possibilities is that she could get transferred to space dock. Mm. That's it. She's so fucking far away. Like, she would have to do this kind of domino effect of being transported. But they've just been to within a stone's throw of, star, of one of the space docks because number one didn't come out of nowhere. But that's what I mean. But that's her option. Option. Like oh, I they're, see. they're just going to ship it, you know, like right. she they seems to be a, very into her work. But, but surely they had to take the other survivors of her ship somewhere. They're not still on the Discovery. They probably are oh. getting I just better. thought it was weird that they never even – it was just one of those things where I just wanted one it's line a black of dialogue hole, to yeah. say what was happening because otherwise it was a bit weird when she turned up and there was no – I don't know. And they did all the work of the exposition of, like, who are you again? You know, like, and she had to kind of say your type. You know, it's like, well, you rescued me from the high author. But it was always my assumption that she was going to be taken up by the crew. But that was just because I figured you don't get Tig Notaro to do one episode of your TV show. Yeah, well, exactly. I I felt the same. But you've also got the start of your answer about what happens to the spore drive now as well. Because the, the mycelial organism reveals that. The discovery's trips through the through the network are destabilizing and destroying its habitat, and so Stamets' immediate reaction is, "Okay, then shut, shut it, down. it down." And you're like, "Yes, this is why we like you, Stamets, because you can be a bit of an asshole, but 
you are ultimately wanting to do the right thing all the time. What's going to happen to Tilly? Yeah, well, I don't know. Where is she, do you reckon? Does she think she's in the mycelial network or do you yeah. think she's vanished somewhere else? I think she's in the network. She's not. Maybe she'll see Hugh. Mm. Well, I don't think she's gone to the mirror universe. No. But she's definitely gone. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll find out. Like, yeah. surely the next episode's got to be about that. Well, it'll be about rescuing her and racing to Spock. Yeah. Well, both. So that could be, maybe that's our next plot. Who knows? Mm. There's one other thing I wanted to talk about, and it's also from the engineering section, is the obsession of Starfleet crew, <laughs> not only in this era, but 100, 150 years later with 20th century culture, because <laughs> Tilly's favorite song is Space Oddity by David Bowie. And to put that in context, that is like you or I having our favorite song be from 288 years earlier. I'm into it. Which probably means it's an opera, right, <laughs> to be fair. I mean, there's folk music from that time as well, but I tried looking it up. And, and, and then Stamets knows it. So, like, there's a canon of music. Like, I, I, I mean, I regularly work with kids who are, you know, 7 to 11 years old, and they don't know any Beatles songs. Or even who the Yeah, but you're are. talking about Starfleet. Like, they probably have, you know, Starfleet 101 is like the history of the obsession with space mm. in, in, in culture. Conte- in culture. <laughs> yeah. In contemporary culture. Like, you know, it'd be the space race and start, like Star Wars, the missile thing, not the actual, well, maybe the I movies think as well. I watch the movies <laughs> <Both>. as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because that was the start of. Yes, that's true. But actually, I do have a theory about this. Can I hit with my theory? Of course. Is that Starfleet, like the original. Star Trek era and the next gen era are both kind of a post-scarcity sort of post-capitalist society. So there's there's no want. Like you've got – we don't really have replicators yet in the Discovery era, but you will soon. And they certainly are able to produce food pretty easily. They do sometimes still talk about money, but certainly by the time of the next generation, they don't have any money. They can just replicate whatever they want. All they need is raw materials and everyone sure. can have whatever they need. So, um, and people who serve in Starfleet, right, their, their mission, like they fulfill themselves by doing stuff, by going out and doing things that they want to do, not because they have to, to feed themselves. Sure. And that's, I mean, and what you see as a result is all these people are doing their job on a starship, but in their leisure time, they don't just sit around watching TV. They all play music and sing and do theater. So there's nobody whose job, it seems, is primarily to be an artist because everybody's got enough leisure time to be an artist if that's what they want to do. Yeah, and they're also like doing heaps of stuff on the holodeck. They're experiencing periods of time in different worlds and it's visceral, Hmm. you know, so they have the access to all of this information at their fingertips. Yeah. So you're talking about it's essentially like a 100% self-actualized society. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a lot of people – learning to play music, to to perform as an actor, and they're learning based on all these classical texts. And you see occasionally, you mostly see it in Voyager, actually, where the, they introduce the concept of the hollow novel, um, although that's also in Next Gen, they just call, don't call it that. But there's people writing these interactive scenarios, uh, and it's just, yeah, I don't know, it's, it's cool. But it, I think that kind of maybe... I, I thought about this way too much, as is my want, but uh, but I just thought maybe that's why they're all obsessed with 20th century culture, because they are looking back to a time where there were people whose whole job, whose whole life was dedicated to the creation of art, whereas now that's pretty rare because everyone has enough time to do that in their spare time. I think you're overthinking it, Ben. It's okay. like in the Star Trek movies when they like go to 20th century Earth and eat a burger. Everybody's screaming because they get to see a representation of their culture in this series, you know. 
if you want to do all the mental gymnastics of trying to understand how that could potentially be, sure. But yeah. I think that that's literally what it is. Oh, yeah. Look, I understand. That's the real real life reason. I just I just like to think about these things. Sure. I'm sure there's many a, th- a fan theory out there as well. I hope so. Yeah. You've been listening to Rediscovery. You'll find links to creatives on our website at rediscoverypodcast.com. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on Twitter and Facebook as Rediscovery Pod. Rediscovery is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. Find more entertainment for your ears at splendidchaps.com.